Hello and welcome to Pairing, a podcast where we pair wine with art and pop culture. I am your host, Emma Sherjarko, and if you are listening to this on its release day, happy Thanksgiving, or as you might refer to it, Thursday. Whether or not you are partaking in Thanksgiving, I hope that you get to relax, feel safe, and drink some delicious wine today. This episode is a little different for two reasons. One, it's just me. I'm sorry, but you're going to be listening to only my voice for the next hour or so. And two, it's a slightly different format as I am answering some audience questions about wine. I hope that you enjoy it, and if this makes you think of some questions of your own, feel free to send me those questions at pairingpodcast at gmail.com. I'm hoping to make these episodes a semi-regular thing, so keep them coming. Speaking of thanks, thank you so much to our newest patron, my dear friend Sarah Wolf, whom you may remember from our Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows episode. If you haven't listened to that episode yet, please do. And if you are not yet a patron, know that if you join us at patreon.com slash pairingpodcast, you can get access to Harry Potter Mad Libs, trivia, and more that Sarah created and let me put on the Patreon. She's amazing. Thank you so much, Sarah. But for now, thank you also to our producer-level patrons, Emma Cohen, Rena Sarame, Zoo Yorker, Allison Turi, and Jacob Penfold, who are all sweeter than an LBV port. And to our advanced producers, Mara Zobrist and Michael Beck, who are both more effervescent than a nice cremant d'Alsace. And thank you so much to all of our patrons and listeners. I cannot tell, mu- I cannot tell you how much your support means to me. Don't forget to share us with a friend this Thanksgiving, and make sure to tell us what you're drinking with your turkey day. Without further ado, here is episode 51, Your Wine Questions. Hi everybody, it's Emma here, and it's it's just me. For the first time in over 50 episodes, you are getting an episode that is just me. So I apologize. Um, Winston was going to record this one with me, but he's been super busy, you know, like, you know, saving the world, saving people's lives and all that. So whatever. Um, no, I'm very, very proud of him and he deserves a break and I'm going to be making him record a bunch of episodes with me coming up. So I figured, you know what, let's let him take a break because this episode is going to be a little different. If you follow me on social media, you'll have noticed that I was asking for some listener questions, wine questions or, you know, wine and art related questions questions um, to answer on an episode. And thank you to our patron Thea for suggesting this. I think it's a really great idea and I want to do it on a semi-regular basis so that, you know, if it's not an urgent question, you know, you can always send me your wine questions and I will do my absolute best to, um, to answer them in a timely fashion and get them to you. But if they're not urgent, um, I think it would be fun, you know, to, to, share them with everybody. And so that's what we're going to do. So I've got a few questions from all y'all and and we're just going to dive into it and I'm going to answer these questions. And hopefully it'll be a little bit of a shorter episode. Hopefully I don't talk for, you know, three hours by myself. Start, you know, 
you're not Dan Carlin, Emma. Jeez. So um, a few of you have sent me some questions, and they're awesome. Some of them are a little bit more wine intensive. Some of them are less. So we're just gonna we're just gonna dive into them. They're all awesome questions. Okay, so our first question is from listener Emily. Thank you so much, Emily, for sending this in. Um, I'm just going to read their email. It says, Hi, Emma and cats. Of course, the cats The cats aren't here with me right now, but the, I, I, I read this email to them and they weighed in, so don't worry. I have a question about choosing wine. I've never known how to go about picking between sparkling wine. There are so many types at so many price ranges, so it gets a little overwhelming. I'm a college student, so can't really get anything super expensive, but sometimes you got to celebrate. Tell me about it. That was, that was Emma interjecting. How do I go about choosing a good bubbly wine? That's a great, great question, Emily. Thank you so much. And this is something that I ultimately would like to do maybe even a whole episode on um, about sparkling wine. But... This is an awesome question. Um, it's one of the questions I get most often working in wine stores um, because, you know, we all want to celebrate, but not everybody can afford to buy, you know, like nice champagne on a regular basis. And um, and luckily, there are some really great options out there. So I uh, I have some notes here. So and they're actual notes on paper. So you'll hear me flipping through paper. How fun is that? Okay, so for sparkling wines, for for inexpensive sparkling wines, my number one go-to that I like is Cava. And Cava is a sparkling wine coming from Catalonia in Spain, so that eastern part of Spain, like right around Barcelona. And um, the reason why I like that one is that I, I've just found, I mean, I prefer a little bit of a drier style sparkling wine. And I've found with Cava's that I think that they are at kind of a higher level, um, a higher quality level at lower price points than some some other sparkling wines. Um, there, you know, there's exceptions. There's always exceptions, but uh, that's sort of my general rule of thumb. And so, if you're in a wine store and you see like some some cheaper sparkling wines, and you're like, I don't know which one of these is going to be best. Usually, cavas are a pretty good bet, and um, and they tend to be drier. Um, so if you like if you like a sort of drier style sparkling wine, they're a really great option. A couple of producers that I would recommend um, in in a in a pretty low price point, you know, and and I'm imagining here, you know, there there's all sorts of price points with sparkling wine, just like with regular wine, and you know, you can find some even under $10 that are okay. Um, I, you know, I kind of, I kind of caution you <laughs> against, against anything too inexpensive because it might just not be good quality, but there are, there are some good ones that are, you know, like eight, $9 a bottle, which is awesome. And, and there's some really good ones in kind of the 10 to $15 range, 15 to 20, and then 20, 30, et cetera, et cetera. Like, you know, there's all sorts of options depending on what your budget is. Um, I know mine is not big, so I, I like, you know, finding the good values. Um, but one, one that's typically around, usually around like $12 a bottle, might be a little more, might be a little less, is called Segura Viudas. And there's also one called Cristalino that I used to sell. Um, you know, one store I sold it at for $8, one store I sold it at for $13. I would say it's 
better, obviously, at the $8 level. And I can't remember at um, at one of the stores I worked at, we, we got a really good deal on this one kava. So I think it would normally be more expensive. Um, but, you know, it was it was like $9 and it was delicious. So... I, you know, kava's, kava's are a good way to go. Um, the other, the other recommendation you probably heard of Prosecco. Um, Prosecco is Italian sparkling wine and is also delicious. Prosecco tends to be a little lighter and a little bit fruitier, not always, not necessarily sweeter, um, but just, just a little bit more fruity. And, and, you know, that can be really nice too sometimes. And what I like about Prosecco is that the, the bubbles tend to be really small. And so it's really nice and light and refreshing, really crisp. Um, so Proseccos can be great too. Some of them are not great. <laughs> um, and I would say in the lower price point, I have had some that I did not love. So that that's why I say kava is kind of a, a safer bet, but there are some really good ones. Um, and a couple recommendations for good inexpensive Proseccos. Um, I love the Jio. So J-E-I-O. I'm not sure if I'm actually pronouncing that right. Um, I, I don't know how you pronounce J's in Italian. Let me know how you pronounce J's in Italian. Um, but that is from the company Bizol, which is one of the best uh, Prosecco producers. So they, they make some really expensive Proseccos. If you see anything with the word Valdo Biadene on it, um, that's kind of like the highest crew of Prosecco, if you will. And, um, and so those are all really, really good. Um, the other, the other big producer that's great is Adami. And those, those Proseccos, you know, I, again, they vary in price because, and I'm going to address this later because there's another awesome listener question um, about kind of distribution and wine distribution and how that works. But so, but so you know, often distributors will say, "Hey, if you buy 100 cases of this wine, we'll give you a really good deal on it." And but some places can't do that. So you know, so these these wines can vary in price from you know like 15 to. 20 something dollars a bottle. But I would say with Proseccos in like the $15 range, they're usually very safe, um, safe that they're well-made. Kind of under 12, you, you don't always know. So, so, you know, you can always ask um, at the wine shop. They might not know. Um, I've discovered that not every wine store has has folks there who know what they're talking about, but um, but you know you can always ask. Okay, so then those are the two best affordable styles of sparkling wine, I would say. Um, if you're willing to spend a little bit more money, like in the in the like twenty ish dollars a bottle, um, I highly recommend Cremants, uh, specifically Cremant d'Alsace. So basically, what Cremant is is a it's a style of sparkling wine very similar to Champagne, but um, because it's not from Champagne, it's usually not as expensive, and those can be really really good and get you a little bit more of that kind of you know still dry but a little bit richer toastier tasting sparkling wine um, that that traditionally you know champagne can be um, there's all sorts of different styles of champagne as well um, and and I sh- and I'm just gonna put this out there I know I've mentioned this before on the podcast champagne refers specifically to sparkling wine made in a made in a specific way coming from the champagne region of France if you go into a wine store and 
um, and you ask for champagne and, and, and somebody says, are you looking for champagne or just sparkling wine? You know, they're, they're, you know, being, being snooty about it, but technically that is the differentiation there. Um, so, so just, just to put that out there, but so Cremants, Cremants are really, really good. And you can find some for around 20, 20 or so a bottle. Um, I, and they're, they're really, really tasty. Um, there's also another little subregion um, called Limoux in France. And if you find Blanquettes de Limoux, those are usually very good. And then there's all sorts of sparkling wine coming from all over. And so I recommend just like giving them a try. Um, notably, I've mentioned before, one of my favorite sparkling wines is from Santa Julia in Mendoza in Argentina. Um, they make a Blanc de Blanc, which means that it's made from 100% Chardonnay. I think they make a Blanc de Noir, which is 100% Pinot Noir. I'm not positive. And they make a sparkling rosé, and they're delicious. And we sold them at the store that I worked at for like $15 a bottle. They were awesome. If you see the Santa Julia sparklings, they're really, really good. Um, and then, you know, like, and I, I saw the other day there was like a sparkling Sauvignon Blanc from New Zealand, which is unusual to see and I taste it it was really good I can't remember the name of the producer but so I was you know unfortunately as with everything there's no hard and fast rule but uh but those those are some general guidelines I'd say you know kava number one choice safe bet for good inexpensive sparkling proseccos often are really good too and then there's then there's just a whole world um and you know if you're willing to spend a little bit more the cremants are really really good um, and, you know, you can find some actually you can find some good champagnes for not that expensive, relatively speaking, you know, for like 30 something a bottle. You can find some true champagnes that are really good. Um, and so, you know, if it's a very special occasion and uh, and you want to go with something like that, um, you can definitely you can definitely find those. Um, but, you know, then champagnes, they get it. They get so, so crazy expensive. Um yeah, I've had some I've had some of them, but not all of them, but there we go. I think we will be having a whole sparkling wine episode, so if this didn't answer all of your questions, I will dive more into it and feel free to ask me any more questions about that. Okay, great. This leads me to my next question. Do 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 do. Aha, here we go. This next question is from listener Valerie Ray, um, who sent me this on Twitter. Thank you, Valerie. And the, their question is, what are some good intro dry wines for someone who normally drinks sweeter wines? Great question. So the short answer is, um, if, you're, if you're a white wine drinker, it's much easier. If you're a red wine drinker, it's much harder. Um, but I'm going to talk a little bit about both. And... So the first thing that I'm going to mention is if you want to if you want to impress, you know, the people at the wine shop or the restaurant or whatever, um, you can ask if they have any off dry wines, because off dry is a very fancy term for a little bit sweet. And you'll hear it most often related to Riesling and Chenin Blanc. Um, so those two grapes, which if you've been listening to the podcast, you know, are two of my favorites. Um, those two grapes can be 
totally dry or they can be off dry or they can even be sweet. Um, usually if they're sweet, they're they're classified as dessert wines. Um, but this is another thing that I, I really struggle with because this is the hardest question for me when people come in um, asking about sweet wines or, or, you know, and some people say, you know, I want a sweet wine and some people say I hate sweet wines. And, and the, the tricky thing is everyone's barometer for what is sweet is different. So I really, you know, you just have to kind of experiment and, and play around a little bit. But the nice thing about Rieslings and Chenin Blancs, even if they're technically classified as dry, they usually have such like vibrant fruit to them. Ooh, I thought I felt a spider on me. I don't think it was. I don't think it was. I think I was imagining it. So so even if they're technically dry, they, they usually have such vibrant fruit, juicy fruit even to them um, that they might appeal to you if you're if you prefer sweet wines. But but they do, you know, if you see demi sec. Um, particularly with with Chenin Blanc from like Vouvray in France, it might say you know Vouvray demi sec or sec, which means dry, demi sec off dry, and um, and so I would recommend you know trying a demi sec Vouvray because that's also it, it you know it's got enough acidity to it that it it will please people who prefer dry wines, but it has that sugar to balance it out that it um, that it you know, it also appeals to people who prefer sweeter wines. So, um, so yeah, so Chenin Blanc and Riesling, two of my favorites. Um, some other, some other white wines that are, that are good options. Um, there's some more aromatic, so kind of more flowery, uh, you know, kind of flowery on the nose and, and even on the palate sometimes. Um, the most notable kind of more aromatic grape is called Gewürztraminer. And and that one that one is usually a more kind of medium bodied uh, style wine that that has that kind of that kind of aromatic quality to it. And they again they can vary widely in in um, in quality and in dryness. So there are some Gewürztraminers that are pretty sweet actually, and then there are some that are pretty dry. Uh, you just kind of have to try check around. Oh, another trick. Um, the, <laughs> this is a great trick if you work in a wine shop because um, often, you know, like German wine bottles are like impossible to decipher. So when I'm trying to figure out whether a, <laughs> a German Riesling is dry or sweet, I look at the alcohol content. So because the alcohol, because the lower the alcohol, the more sugar is in it. So um you're generally speaking, you're going to want, you're probably going to prefer a lower alcohol wine. So that's, that's, that's another thing to ask is to ask for is kind of lower alcohol wine. And what I would say is, you know, some of the Rieslings, some of the sweet Rieslings or off dry Rieslings, those, those are around like seven, eight, nine percent alcohol. And then when you get into kind of 10, 11 percent that's more off dry or but you know veering into dry um and then like 11 or 12 percent that's pretty normal for a, a dry white wine um and then 13 5 is is normal for for a red wine but yeah so alcohol content that's another thing to look at um, a couple other grapes. Um, a lot of the a lot of the white wines from Alsace I would check out. Um, so they make 
Gewürztraminer there, Pinot Blanc, Pinot Gris, um, Muscat. Uh, that's another more aromatic wine. Um, so those 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 might appeal to you because again they're a little bit more fruity, a little more aromatic, and um, some other grapes that are a little bit more aromatic. Torrantes from Argentina, which I've mentioned before, and Viognier, which I haven't talked about in a while, but I I love Viognier, and that's another one that can vary a lot. So some Viogniers can be kind of quite quite crisp and quite dry and others can be quite luscious and aromatic so you it, you kind of just have to ask um, but yeah so I would say I would say those those are some of my rec- recommendations for dry or off dry white wines reds are tougher because it is much rarer um, that's a word more rare to find um, red wines that have a higher sugar content. So, so what I would say, um, I, I like to recommend red wines that are what we call fruitier or juicier, um, and a little bit lower in tannin because tannin is, that's that thing that, you know, dries your mouth out. And I think that is what's often unappealing to people about, about wine, um, and so some, some grapes, some wines like Zinfandel and Malbec tend, well, Malbecs can have more tannin to them, um, but Zins are usually pretty safe. They're usually fruitier, l- less tannin to them, and um, just kind of like, even if they're not technically sweet, there's like a perception of sweetness to them or kind of fruitiness to them. Um, Zinfandel was one of the grapes that really got me into wine. I think it's a good gateway grape. That's <laughs> what I call them. I'm sorry if that's offensive and problematic. Um, but yeah, Zinfandel and Malbec are often two of the wines that, that people get into when they first get into wines. And, you know, nothing against Zinfandel and Malbec, but it's often because they're a little bit simpler and a little bit less harsh. Um, and, and I mean, to call them simpler, that sounds, that sounds, uh, you know, like I'm, uh, being condescending to them, but <laughs> they're they're they, they're great wines. Um, but they but they appeal to to newer wine drinkers often because because they don't have that huge tannin. Um, Grenache is another one that I love, um, or Garnacha, and uh, again, those can vary a lot. Um, but you can find some really nice, really pretty, kind of you know more flowery. Uh, notes you can find in some Grenache, um, and they they can have more acidity to them, but they're usually pretty fairly low in tannin. Um, you know that that varies, that varies. But but Grenache is a good one. Some kind of weirder red wines that come to mind are lighter bodied reds, um, and ooh Beaujolais is another good one. Beaujolais made from Gamay, and I love Beaujolais. Um, that's another that's another good one. Um, and then, but the, but these lighter bodied kind of weird reds that, uh, that I thought of are Grignolino and Schiava, which are two sort of obscure red grapes from Italy that are a little bit lighter. Um, Grignolino especially can be quite light and, uh, you know, almost just like a step above rosé and, um, and those those can be really nice if you're not a huge fan of dry wines um, because they are technically dry, but they're they're lighter and they're fruitier and they're they're really really good, really delicious. Um, and then my other my other suggestion was going to be sparkling wine um, because 
some some sparkling wines have almost a perception of sweetness to them. So like Blanc de Blanc, which is made from 100% Chardonnay, often has a little bit of a toastier, almost sweeter uh, perception to it. So that that would be another another recommendation that I have. I hope that that was helpful. Speaking of sweet wines, let's talk about. I'm gonna I'm gonna answer a question from a good friend of mine, Chris Chandler, who I just laughed when he sent this to me because he he's a certified sommelier, so he he should know better than me. You should know better than me, Chris. <laughs> but thank you for sending this along because this this was a nice chance for me to kind of brush up. And so Chris asked. What exactly is an LBV port? So that might mean like almost nothing to you, and that's totally cool. I'm going to break it down a little bit and answer Chris's question, which I couldn't answer when he asked me, but now I know the answer to, so thank you. Um, So port, as you might know, is a fortified dessert wine coming from from the Douro region of Portugal, and and it's it's so good. It's so good. Um, I mean... I was going to say, if you like sweet wines, you know, go for port. Port is freaking delicious. So I'm not going to go into port technically too much. But um, but so Chris asked, what is LBV port? So there's all these different designations of port. So I'm just going to give you a little bit of information about what port is, how it's made, and um, and what the different designations are, and then we'll we'll dive into specifically the LBV ports. Um, okay, so port is made by running off partially fermented red wine. This, by the way, is from the World Atlas of Wine by Jancis Robinson. Um, thank you, Jancis. She's incredible. Um, okay, so port is made by running off partially fermented red wine while the tank still contains at least half its grape sugar. So basically only half of the wine has fermented. Into a tank or barrel that is a quarter full of spirits, which are often chilled, um, which is usually a fair quality brandy. So fortified wine is is wine grapes that are fortified with a spirit of some sort, usually brandy. So that's what port is. The whole history of port is really interesting because even though it's in Portugal, it's been dominated by, uh, you know, like English English companies, and so it's it's very it's very interesting. It's a very interesting tradition, um, and the kind of business of port is. Um, I'm not going to go into that too much, but let's go into the different types of port. Okay, so we've got tawny ports. So you might see tawny on a label. Um, what tawny ports are it means that the the you know once this process has happened, the grape the the fortified wine is aged in barrels called pipes from two to 50 years. Wow. Um, and those have a kind of more nutty, oxidative, caramelly quality. Really good, often really good value. So those are tawny ports. And then we've got ruby or red ports. Um, you, you might see just kind of simple ruby ports. Those are, those are kind of the, the simplest meant to be consumed young. Um, but with under, under the umbrella term of red port, there's vintage port, LBV port, which we're going to get into, um, crusted, which doesn't sound very nice, and and ruby port, as I mentioned. Okay, so let's start with vintage port because that's the most kind of famous and illustrious style of port. 
And it is basically what it sounds like. It's a single vintage, um, so so one year of, of grapes harvested, that is aged two to three years in barrel, then bottled and aged for an additional 20 to 40 years. So... Um, so, for example, I mean, they only do this when they consider the vintage good, um, or usually they only do this when they consider the vintage good. And I'm not sure how 1999 was as a vintage, but in theory right now, um, now is the time that they would be possibly releasing the 1999 ports. I've seen some some like 2000, 2001 vintage vintage ports out there as well. It's not, it's not a hard and fast rule, but usually they're aged for quite a long time. Okay, so then there's LBV, and LBV stands for late bottled vintage. Um, so like it sounds, it's, it's also a vintage port, but it's made a little bit differently. Instead of aging two to three years in barrel, it ages four to six years in barrel, but then it's pretty much produced and you're meant to drink it faster. So it's um, late, meaning it's it's aged longer, and then before it's bottled. And it's still a single vintage, but unlike the vintage port, which is supposed to age in bottle for a really long time, you're supposed to just drink these LBV ports right away. And they're often really a good value and really high quality as well. And they vary in style. So so, so that is your answer, Chris, um, of what LBV ports are. And then I, I, I think I mentioned this maybe in like the first episode um, when we were talking about The Hobbit. But the thing that's really confusing about port, um, so with tawny ports, as I mentioned before, tawny ports can be a blend of vintages. And if you see on on a port label 10-year, 20-year, 30-year, 40-year, it, it doesn't mean that they're 10 years old, 20 years old, 30 years old, 40 years old. It means that they are a blend of vintages with at least 10, 20, 30, 40 years of barrel aging on them. So it's a little confusing. So it has to do with how long it's been aging, not like the vintage that the wine is from. It's confusing. Um, if that, if that like just totally goes over your head, do not worry. It's confusing to me too. Just a couple other port terms just since we're talking about it. Colheta or coleta, again, I'm not sure how to pronounce Portuguese, tell me, um, is a single vintage of tawny port. Crusted, as I mentioned before, which sounds kind of yucky, is a blend of more than one vintage in a drink now style. Yeah. Okay. So that's port. Um, and I hope that was helpful for me to brush up on because I had totally forgotten. I've, I think I've learned what late bottle vintage ports are like four times and it just goes right over like I, I lose it. So hopefully this will stick. This will stick this time. It's aged longer, meant to be drunk sooner. There you go. Single vintage. Okay. All right. Before we get to the rest of your excellent questions, let's take a break so I can tell you about this week's sponsor, Care Of. The holidays are upon us, and I know for me that means lots of eating and drinking and not having as much time to take care of myself. That's where Care Of comes in. Care Of is a wellness brand that makes it easy to get the right vitamins, supplements, and protein powders for your specific needs. 
Whether you're looking for glowing skin, more energy, better sleep, or something to support your health and fitness routine, Care-of helps you build and stick with a plan that's right for you. Care-of helps you get back into a healthy routine. It can be hard to prioritize your health during the season of equal parts stress and celebration, but Care-of makes it easy to get into a healthy routine. Care-of's online quiz lets you know exactly what you need. You take a short, fun, five-minute quiz and answer easy questions about your diet, lifestyle, and health needs. The quiz let me know about all sorts of vitamins and supplements that could help me, and it was so easy and fun. I actually kind of want to take it again. Is that weird? I also love that you can modify your subscription at any time if your needs change or you're traveling or whatever. Because taking care of your health should be easy and convenient. Your Care of order gets shipped right to your door in convenient daily packs, perfect for a busy on-the-go lifestyle. Care of is personalized for you even down to the packaging. The vitamin packs and protein tubs say your name on them. How cute is that? So experience the Care of difference. Care of makes it easy to see where they source their ingredients from and ensure only the highest quality products. And they have vegan and vegetarian supplement options available to match your dietary needs and to ensure you're getting the nutrients you need for those specific diets. And right now, Care-of is offering our listeners 25% off your first order when you go to TakeCareOf.com and enter the promo code PAIRING. That's TakeCareOf.com and the promo code PAIRING for 25% off your first order from Care-of. And now, back to the show. Okay, so now I have a couple of questions from my beloved patron, Michael Beck. Thank you, Michael, for sending in these awesome questions. Because I mentioned it a little bit before, we're going to start with your first question, or Michael's first question, which is a great question and a very complicated question, um, which is who or what determines which wines are sent to which wine stores or regions? Wow. I wish I had a, a like clear-cut answer for this. Um, but the, the long, I mean, the short answer is it's complicated. But what, I, what, I'll, what I'll go into just a little bit is there's just a little bit of, um, of, of different steps in the process of, of getting wine from the winery to, you know, your home. So the first... Uh, obviously, so it starts, you know, the wine is made at the winery and there's different types of wineries. There's the family owned ones. There's the huge conglomerate business owned ones. And um, but basically, fundamentally, let's just let's let's go with European wines, for for example, European or any wine not in America. It's basically the same in America, too. But there's one fewer step, which is that there there is an importer. And so basically you have to go through an importing company if you're going to get the wine out of the country. So let's let's say for example, you know, there's a French wine that you that uh the importer might be like Kermit Lynch. Kermit Lynch is one of the most famous importers um in in, in America for for wine or he might be British actually. I'd have to double check that. But anyway, Basically, there's the step from getting the wine, and there's probably a step in between too. There's probably like an exporter business, um, but I but I know that 
you know, working in a wine shop in America, the way that we get the wine from Europe is it has to go through an importer and then the importer goes through a national distrib- distributor. And then the distributor, you know, then they, they're the ones who come to the wine store or the restaurant and, and they sell the wine to those businesses, which then sell it to you. There, you know, you can you can cut out the middleman sometimes by going directly to the winery, though you'll find that that doesn't often save you that much money. But but, you know, it's always nice to to support to support wineries when you're there. And and in terms of what determine who determines what goes where, it's complicated. Um, Unfortunately, you know, in in the United States, it's been really interesting for me since I now work in a wine store again in New Mexico. And I was working in a wine store in Colorado. Colorado is one of the biggest markets in the country, you know, along with California, New York, just because there's there's you know there's just so many places in Colorado that that are really know their wine and really demand good wine. And then and then New Mexico's like okay, we get we get some stuff, but like for example, I've been really struggling to find good Coterone that's inexpensive because it because it just like it really bothers me that the only Coterones I've seen I see on a regular basis are like $20 and above while in Colorado we had like 20 Coterones that were under $20 so so that's a really interesting thing and that just and that I I think it depends on demand um you know if for example, let's say like there's this producer Madela Beyond that I love that I don't think has distribution here in New Mexico. Now, I could try to go to a distributor and say, "Hey, this is a great wine. Could you try to get this wine in your portfolio?" And they could try to go to the importer and try to do that. It gets even more complicated. You know, sometimes people ask for wine. They're like, oh, I went to this winery in France and I tasted this wine and I want it. And that's it can get even more complicated because they might not even export their wine. And so then you'd have to go to an importer and get the importer to get their wine. And it's just, it's it's a whole mess. And it drives me nuts sometimes. <laughs> and, but that's but that's part of the pricing of wine you know, I mean, the part of the reason why, you know, people say, you know, you go to Europe and the wine is so cheap. I mean, often that is because that, you know, they just pretty much got it from the winery and it's not, you know, and there's not that much cost involved in getting from there to wherever you, you're at. I mean, it varies. It varies. It always varies. But, but yeah, so that's the, that's sort of the, I would say the demand is part of what determines what goes where. And that's why I always encourage people, you know, if you've got a good wine store, ask them if they can special order something for you because if they if they can, then they'll do it, but you know, there's some stuff that you just you just can't get because it doesn't have distribution in the state and it, every state has different alcohol laws and it and it's just it's it's so oh, it's so tiring sometimes. So I hope that sort of answers your question. It's sort of a frustrating answer because there isn't really a good one. Um, I wish that it were as simple as like, hey, I had this wine somewhere. Can I get it here? Not always. You can always try to direct order from 
from the wineries themselves if they ship. But, you know, again, part of like the different states laws, sometimes different, you can't ship alcohol to certain states. So it's, it's very frustrating. It's very frustrating. But long story short, I think it depends on the general market um, and what kind of, you know, what kind of industry there is in any given, in any given city and state. And, um, and then, and then just, you know, on a macro level, kind of the, the district, the distribution companies that are in each state and in the, in different countries as, as a whole. So, yeah, so that's sort of, sort of how it works. Um, and then, I mean, and then on a very micro level, you know, obviously the, the wine buyer at, a restaurant or a wine store is the one who ultimately determines what's in their wine store. And some places don't like to special order, but some places do. And if they, and if they do special order, then you can, te- in theory, you can get anything as long as it is available through a distributor in that state. I hope that's somewhat helpful. But Michael's next question is very fun and very difficult. These are good questions, Michael. Um, definitely challenging. Michael's second challenging question is, what are the weirdest types of wine you have personally experienced? This is a hard question because it, I, I, it, you know, it's one of the, it's one of those things where like, you know, I read the question. I was like, oh my God, I've had so many weird wines and just draw a blank. <laughs> so, but I did come up with some of the weirdest ones. Um, one of the weirdest ones that I've had recently, and I've actually had a couple of them, which is weird. Um, I've had a blend of Cinso, the grape Cinso, which is usually, usually used as a blending grape. You can find 100% Cinsos, but this was a Cinso, or these two were Cinsos blended with the great Pais, which I've talked about before on the podcast, um, also known as Mission, um, but this is these these wines were coming from Chile, and in Chile they call they call Mission Pais, which is awesome. I prefer Pais, um, and they're really funky and weird, like really light, um, but kind of like kind of like dirty smelling. Um, and one of them had carbonic maceration on it, so that's the process where. Um, the primary fermentation happens within the grape itself and kind of gives it like a very fruity, bubblegummy bubble kind of taste almost. Um, super strange, but I really liked it. Um, otherwise, the, the one that sticks out to me as kind of the weirdest wine I ever tasted, like in terms of the taste of the wine, there's, there's a type of wine called Vin Jaune which comes from the Jura region of France, which is kind of known for its supernatural, funky, weird wines. But this one particularly um, is, I think it might technically be almost like a fortified, it's not fortified, but it like goes through a weird fermentation process. And so it doesn't taste like a normal still wine. An article I was reading about it compared it to sherry from Spain, um, but it's made from the Sauvignon grape. And I don't think they're all quite this weird, but that, you know, there's a, like a special yeast that's used in the fermentation process. And this, but this one that I had, I remember it, it tasted almost like alcoholic still kombucha. And I did not like it. <laughs> I normally like like really weird, funky, unusual wines, but this one just 
did not taste good to me at all. Um, uh, you know, call me old fashioned, call me boring. Um, but th- that was one of the weirdest wines I ever tasted, like in terms of the taste of it. Some other some other wines that like sound weird on paper, but weren't super strange to taste. Um, one of the weirdest or most unusual I feel like I tried was a white Merlot from the North Fork of Long Island. Very random. Um, I, I think I think they do that. I, like it's it wasn't unique to this winery. I think they make white Merlot there, so it's a white wine made from Merlot. Who 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 to thunk it? Um, and then this is for you, Michael. Um, I've had a white Tempranillo before, which Tempranillo is ninety nine point nine percent of the time a red wine. Um, and both these wines, the white Merlot and the white Tempranillo, they just tasted like you know pretty good dry white wine. It, there wasn't anything like particularly remarkable about how they tasted. It's just unusual. So those ones are kind of kind of cool. Um, another one that I think I've mentioned before, uh, there's a grape called Valdegui. Um, we used to call it the hipster grape uh, <laughs> at uh, at my old store. Um, it, there's nothing, like, too weird about it. It's just kind of a weird, funky, funky grape. Um, and, and I would say, generally speaking, um, I've had a lot of weird Cabernet Francs, and I have loved most of them. Um, one of the one of the first wines that I really fell in love with was at the first store I worked at in New York, and it was a Cabernet Franc. Um, I I forget what it what the name of the producer was, but the but the name of the wine was like Le Petit Diable or whatever the little devil is in 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 French, and it was like really light, almost effervescent, super funky, super natural. You know, we've talked about natural wines before and how that doesn't really mean anything, but this one was weird but I loved it so so that one was pretty weird and then I've also had a fortified cherry wine before so wine made from cherry that was fortified with brandy that was delicious I gotta say that was really really good um yeah so so those are so those are uh some of the weirdest wines that came to mind um after I thought about it a little bit you know I'm always down to try to try some weird weird funky juice but um but you know after you taste a lot, they all kind of run together in your brain. Um, <laughs> but yeah, but I remember those. I remember that Vangelon. That was fucking weird. All right. Last question is from friend of the show and two-time guest of the show, John Paul Sorelli. Hey, everyone. Now seems like a great time to let you know that John Paul is actually launching his own podcast today, if all goes well. It's Thanksgiving, so, you know, Apple Podcasts is weird. It's called Celluloid Bastards, and it's all about unconditionally loving movies that have garnered a bad reputation over the years. If you've enjoyed our Cats and Halloween episodes with John Paul, you are sure to love this podcast, and you may hear me on it soon. It may take a second or two for it to be available on all podcatchers, but make sure to follow John Paul on Facebook and Twitter at Vulgare for updates. Okay, back to his question. Uh, I wanted to close with this one because this is kind of a more esoteric question um, in in typical form. So I just, uh, I'm just going to read John Paul's message to me and I will do my best to answer it. So it's another really good question. Okay, John Paul says, since we've talked about gimmicky wine before, let's open this up. Do gimmicky wines deserve the automatic derogation they seem to receive from some in the wine community? 
I know the old school mentality is that the wine should speak for itself, but have you encountered any gimmicky wines for which you thought that the gimmick actually added to the appeal of it as a, in a non-distracting way? Bonus points if you also want to open the can of worms and answer whether or not you think this is partly a generational issue, as in my experience, people in our age group seem to be much more open to at least giving gimmicky wines a chance than older wine aficionados do. And um, I'm gonna, I, 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 I'm gonna, you know, go for the bonus points and start with the the second part of that question, which I think John Paul is right, you know, hit the nail on the nose. Um, that I do think it is a little bit of a gem- general generational issue. Um, I haven't even I haven't even had any wine yet today. Maybe maybe that's the problem. I think I've had too much coffee. <laughs> I've had too much coffee. I haven't had enough wine. But so yes, I think it's a little bit of both. I think it's, it's yes, both can be true. So sometimes wines are gimmicky, and they're gimmicky because they're not actually good. And so they're going for the marketing value. Just coming to mind, John Paul and I talked about in our cats episode, the the wine bottle that's actually shaped like a cat. Okay, I'm going to be fair, I have not tasted that wine. So I don't know that it's not good. But I presume that it's probably not good. And maybe that's just me being judgmental. But I do think that there are wines that are kind of, you know, kind of gimmicky, but in a fun way. And I would say, I would say like, you know, as long as there's like sort of a clever, like sense of humor involved in it, I am more likely to give the wine uh, its due. So, so yeah, I, I, I do think, I do think that some winemakers, they kind of want the camp, they want the gimmick. Um, and they know, like, and they're having fun with it. And I think that ultimately, you know, comes back to the kind of whole ethos of the podcast, which is that there's a lot of intersection between art and wine. And I think that, you know, part of making the decision of what goes on a wine label or what to call the wine, that can be really, that can be really valuable, really valuable and intentional. Um, a couple, a couple that just come to mind, and I, you know, I, I, I've sold so much wine in my time, <laughs> and so again, it's another one of those things like, oh yeah, I've dealt with lots of gimmicky wines, but I can't, you know, nothing comes to mind when I think about it. But a couple that do, again, I talked about this one in the cats episode, but there was the Nine Lives Riesling from I forget the name of the producer, but it's from Mosul in Germany, and it's a Riesling. That's really quite good. Um, nothing, you know, nothing to like sing from the shout from the rooftops, whatever, sing from the treetops. I, I don't know. That's what I was going. That's where my mind went to. But so, you know, but it's really good. And I in that one, you know, every different they, they created like possibly nine different wine labels of a cat, you know, doing something precarious. <laughs> and and in that sense, I thought that 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 was clever and funny and yeah super gimmicky and kind of corny but but to me like really augmented the experience of the wine um you know because the quality was already good but there was a joke going along with it and i thought that was great so that that's the primary example that i thought of 
um, for, yes, gimmicky can be good. Hey there, me from the future again to tell you about one of my favorite gimmicky wines, which is Kyle McLaughlin's winery Pursued by Bear Wines in Washington. Obviously, anyone who is a theater nerd like me will love these wines, which are excellent, and the name just gives them such an awesome story. I love it so much. Also, it's my life goal to have Kyle on the podcast, so if anyone has a connection, please hook me up. And another one, I know I've talked about this one a million times, so I'm sorry, but the the Corviday Wine Company in uh, in Washington, where all their wines are named after birds in the Corviday family, so rooks, um, Ravenna's for ravens, uh, the Lenore for for the raven by Edgar Allan Poe. Those wines are great, and and I and I think the artwork on them is beautiful, and I think I'd like the story behind it, and 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 all that. So yeah, so I do think that often like a little bit of of gimmick, um, and and giving giving a wine a little bit of a story, uh, I think that I think that can be really fun. And the second half of the question is, well, before I get into that, I would just say I just would caution you against going for the gimmick only because there are certain wines that I think rely too heavily on that, either because they're just bad or because they're trying to charge a lot of money. And the one that comes to mind of the of the latter is um, is Orin Swift. Uh, who's a winemaker in California, or it's, I mean, it's a company in California, basically, at this point. But the Orange Swift wines are, they have really cool, beautiful artwork on the labels and really cool names and stuff, but they're quite expensive. And in my opinion, at least, at least half of what you're paying for is the bottle, itself um and not the wine within it um you know the wine is good it's not it's not like it's shitty wine but it's it it they can get so expensive and they're just you can get something much better i i feel like and it's a shame because the the bottles are really beautiful the artwork that they get on there is really really beautiful um and really interesting so you know take that for what it's worth but so the second half of John Paul's question of whether this is partially at least a genera- generational issue, I would say yes. Not to say that there aren't people in an older generation who appreciate uh, gimmicks and, and kind of stories behind wine, but I would say the real kind of the real kind of stiff upper lip, you know, traditional wine aficionados, yeah, that they don't like that. They don't want that. And that's you know, I think I think you lose I think you lose a little bit if you're not at least open to to something being fun. And but they, you know, they know what they like and they know what they want and uh you know, that's that's all well and good for them, but I I always appreciate and I think it's a generational thing with winemakers too. I think that some of the younger winemakers are more willing to take more risks and have more fun with with uh, you know, everything else besides the wine itself. And I think that's cool. I think that's great. I think that the more creativity involved is, um, is great. And I think that, you know, as a generation, we, we kind of like humor. I think (laughs) generationally, we're kind of like the dark humor generation. (laughs) 
but yeah, so that's that's my personal opinion. Um, I think that to to discount something solely because it it looks silly is you, you'll lose out if you're not open to to some things. But you also have to be a little you know a little smart about it, and uh, you know just ask <laughs> if you're like, ooh, that wine bottle is pretty and fun and cool. I don't know anything about the wine. You know, do a quick Google on it and uh, and see what you see what you find about it. If you if you don't tr- you know if you don't have a, a wine shop associate who you trust. All right, so that those are my answers to those questions. Um, this was fun, and uh, it, and lo and behold, I talked for almost an hour just by myself. But um, but that was that was really fun for me. Um, please continue to send me these questions. Um, I, I hope to do these kind of episodes on a regular basis. So send me an email at pairingpodcast at gmail.com or uh, just, you know, on any social media platform. And I will do my best. I will do my best to answer them to the best of my ability. So thank you so much for listening. Cheers. Pairing was created, hosted, and produced by Emma Sherjarko with music and audio recording by Winston Shaw and logo artwork by Darcy Zimmerman and Katie Huey. This episode was edited by Emma Sherjarko. Follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, Facebook, and Instagram at Pairing Podcast to keep tabs on what we're up to. And feel free to send us any thoughts, questions, requests, and pairings of your own on our website, thepairingpodcast.com, via email at pairingpodcast at gmail.com, or on any social media platform. Come check us out on Patreon at patreon.com slash pairingpodcast, where you can pledge as little as $1 a month and get access to exclusive content, customized pairings from me, live streams, and more. Also, check out our merch store on our website at thepairingpodcast.com slash merch. If you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts and sharing with your friends. Thank you so much for listening to Pairing, where you come for the stories and stay for the wine.